Tonight, Galatians 4, 21 through 31, a two-part message. And I'll get started for you that maybe haven't been around for much of Galatians. Don't you worry. Don't you fear. Um, Robin Hood's not here, but, but I'll help you catch up. It's all good. And uh, Paul basically says in our text to each genuine Christian that, that um, Christians, that we are miracles of grace. That is Christians, I don't know if you think of it that way, but if you're a child of the king tonight, you are a miracle of his grace. Isn't that a good, isn't that a good word? We're miracles. Would you, would you just, would you mind turning to somebody and say, you're a, you're a miracle of God's grace. Just tell them. Yeah. Yes, you are. Paul basically says in our text that we are miracles of grace. I want to jump ahead. Lord, bless your word tonight. Help us to be, spend the next few moments together hungry about the word of God that we'll learn and grow. Keep us focused, Lord, on what you would speak to our hearts through your word tonight in Jesus' name. I want to skip to Galatians 4 and verse 29 of our text. Paul says, but you are now being persecuted by those who want you to keep the law. Just as Ishmael, the child born by human effort, persecuted Isaac, the child born by the power of the Spirit. The Ishmael symbolism and the Isaac symbolism led to two different realities. We might say that there's really just two kinds of people in the world. We, we might say it like that. There are, there are people born once and there are people born twice. That's really the only two kinds of people in the world. People that are born once, people that are born twice. People who are born naturally and people who are born naturally and supernaturally. And if we've been saved by the blood of Jesus, we're a child of God, we've been born both, then we've been born both naturally and supernaturally. Water baptism becomes an opportunity to share our testimony of when we repented because of our faith in God and confessed Jesus as our Lord and Savior. I, I've spoken to people who have told me that they were born in Christian families, sadly less and less, but they were born in Christian families and were raised hearing the gospel. I've talked to people in our church who have told me they don't remember a time in their life when they did not really know Jesus. Maybe their parents even spoke the gospel to them while they were still in the womb of their mother. But when we truly begin to dig into a person's life, we find that even a person born into a Christian home, if they're truly a Christian by being born the second time, they have a personal testimony of their salvation. Many of you remember how the Lord got your attention. You had served yourself, served the devil, did everything but serve the Lord. You became fully aware at some point in your life that you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But here you are tonight and you have a testimony of God's grace in your life. I always encourage people 
to always have their testimony ready and be able to share it at any time with anyone. And hopefully we are in good practice of sharing our testimony. Because every one of us as children of God who have been born supernaturally should be a testimony of God's faithfulness and goodness. And uh, we need to share it. And God made it so others need to hear the good testimony and the message of the gospel. And some of you might think, well, what if people don't believe me? Well, here's what I've learned about your personal testimony. Nobody can take it away from you because it belongs to you. It's yours. What God has done for you, nobody can take that from you. I just want you to know that if you truly believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of living God, and he died on the cross in your place for your sins, and that you've called on him, then you're saved. And by his grace, you now live like an Isaac and not an Ishmael. You're going to understand that more fully uh, between tonight and especially next week as we kind of kind of really dig into this text. It's, it's incredible. But that's the simple lesson of our text in Galatians 4, 21 through 31. Paul in verse 21 speaking directly to some people who apparently seem to want to live under the law. And by the way, that's us sometimes if we're not intentional and we're not careful and we're not on, on purpose. Paul says in 21, tell me, you who want to live under the law, do you, do you know what the law actually says? Paul's saying, do you know what the law actually says? It means to rely on self-effort at keeping the law, to rely on yourself to get into or maintain a relationship with God. That's what it means to be under the law, that you are relying on your strength, your power, your will, your, your ability to maintain a walk with God. What's the Holy Spirit for if you're going to do it all on your own? And he's saying, wait a minute. You don't want to live that life. That's impossible. It can't be done. That's not the purpose of the law ever even being given. We can't do it. We have to earn. When you live by the law, you have to earn God's smile. We have to earn his favor. We have to earn his approval. We have to earn our right standing with him. We have to come into it by our own efforts. We have to keep it and maintain it by our own efforts. That's what it means to be under the law. Why would we want to live in that kind of bondage? Why would we ever want to live like that? This is what Paul is doing everything in his power in the book of Galatians to convince these people who have listened to these false teachers and they've bought into this idea to stop it. Regarding our text, Tim Keller comments by saying that there are four types of people when it comes to these issues. And I really thought it was worthy of the time to spend just a few moments uh, sharing what he said about this. And so I'm going to do that. First, there are, first, Tim Keller says this there are um, law abiding, and by the way, I'm, I'm not saying what I'm going to share with you is 100% completely accurate. But when I, I, I contemplated, should I share it or not? And it really, 
I think it does help us understand some things that we need to understand in a practical kind of way and how we live our lives. And so he says, first, there are law-abiding, law-relying people. They live in a constant reliance on their own obedience to the moral standard that's been given by God, the law of Moses. They tend to be smug, self-righteous, and superior. But they also, ironically, tend to be very insecure. They're touchy, irritable, and sensitive to criticism. They tend to shoot the messenger if anyone comes and says there's anything wrong with them. Then secondly, there's law-disobeying, law-relying people. So the first one is law-abiding, law-relying. The second one, he says, is law-disobeying, law-relying people. I know it's hard to get your brain around this, but here's the definition of that one. These are people who have developed a religious conscience based on a strong works-based righteousness, but they're failing to live up to it consistently. Why? Because you can't. Therefore, they're more humble and brokenhearted than the first group. They're more tolerant of others, but they're guilt-ridden and given to despair. They may attend church services, but they stay on the outskirts, on the periphery of the church life because they feel so worthless spiritually. So they stay on the outside. They, they come, they go, they kind of, you know, come around, but don't get in. They know that they're sinners, but their only remedy is to try harder, and that only leads to more depression. The third category, I'm going to get to a better one. I'm going to get to a better category, but not yet. There's the third category, is people who do not rely on the law, which could be good, but they disobey the law. These people have thrown off the concept of God's holy laws altogether. They've thrown off the idea of a moral standard coming from God. Remember, the law can't save you, but it doesn't mean that the law is bad. They are totally secular and live very vague spiritually. They invent and choose their own moral standards. They put together an a la carte like a golden corral just putting on the tray what they want. They pick and choose what they want. It's about them. They are often in many ways just as judgmental as the Pharisees because in reality they cannot even live up to their own self-acquired standards. So they have these self-acquired standards and they can't even live up to them. And if we, don't, if we do not stand up and give a standing ovation at key moments to what they say is right, then we become the wicked and evil and, and we're judged by them just like the Pharisees of old did. They're trying to earn their own version of salvation by feeling morally superior to others, but their system of righteousness is self-invented, it's self-defined, and it's self-assessed. That's the third category. So here's the fourth, the last one. Law-obedient, but not law-relying. 
Now, my hope is we're all in this category. These are Christians who understand the gospel and live out the freedom of the gospel. They obey God's moral law by the power of the Spirit. Did you catch that? They obey God's moral law by the power of the Holy Spirit that's in them and the grateful joy of knowing that they're secure, adopted sons and daughters of God. They know that their, few, fail, they know that their failures are covered by the grace of God in Christ as they continue to live the life God has called them to live. If they mess up, and they do at times, that doesn't mean that they have a license to go out and sin and, and do premeditated sin. But if they mess up, if they sin, they get up. They realize that God's grace is sufficient to them because they're in a process of sanctification, being more and more like Christ every day that they live and that they stumble and they fall. And what do they do? They get up. They rely on God's grace. They put a smile on their kisser. They hold their shoulders back. They repent and say, Lord, I'm sorry. By the grace of God, I repent, which means I turn from that and I'm going to grow and mature in the things of the Lord. I'm not going to live that way. They repent and they believe that God has forgiven them. They believe that their security is not in their goodness, but in his goodness, in his faithfulness, in his ability. Now, I'm going to say this. Most Christians in this category still struggle and still tend to see the world from time to time in one of the other three categories. In other words, this fourth category is where we want to be, but occasionally we stumble into one of the other three. What do we do? Get out of it. We need people in our lives to say, stop that. So, either as a Pharisee relying on their own obedience to the moral law, or as a law relying failure, or as a secular moralist. Those are those other three, basically. Now, that's, that's Tim Keller. His writings have some value to denote. But we should ask, where, where do each of us fit in that matrix? And what do we struggle with even if we're in number four? We're coming to the issue in which Paul is addressing directly to those who apparently want to live under the law. Paul's addressing these people who apparently want to default to living under the law. For them, it's Jesus plus the law equals salvation. That's what the book of Galatians is about. And before you're like, well, I don't even know if I need this teaching. Yes, you do. Because for all of us, if we're not careful, it's Jesus plus something in our life that we have defaults that tend to think we're okay. Or it's Jesus plus I'm better than that person equals salvation. Don't, don't raise your hand. Has anybody ever compared yourself with somebody else and then think, well, 
I'm pretty good. I think I'm good with God because look at that dude. As we say around here, the only person we should ever compare ourselves to is Jesus. He's the standard, right? So Paul uses a story based on the Old Testament to teach the same principle that he's been teaching, which is that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. It's not based on self-effort, some other category, some other comparison, some other self-help program, some other do this, do that, check all the boxes, self-effort in the law, that our salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Now, some of you may not have been with us as we've been teaching through Galatians. That's okay. Because this is one of the most powerful writings in the history of the human race. It's only 149 verses, yet it's a short writing with explosive implications and ramifications for the human race. It searches out some of the deepest issues of human experience. Man, when I got started getting into Galatians, I had no idea where this journey was going to take me personally. And maybe the deepest issue is how can a sinner like me stand in a right relationship with a holy God? Paul is writing to the Galatian churches that he planted. He was proclaiming the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Galatians heard it and they believed it. They repented, they received the gift of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and they began to live a joy-filled, fruitful, powerful Christian life. Paul leaves town because he's a traveling church planning evangelist missionary apostle. And after he leaves, these false teachers show up, claiming to be Christians, but they absolutely were not. They were called by many theologians or interpreters, Judaizers, and they came with a toxic brew, combination of faith in Christ crucified and resurrection, plus obedience to the law of Moses, and that would equal salvation. And Galatians 1 says that these false teachers are throwing you into confusion, trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Pastor, why are you kind of summarizing everything we've taught in Galatians up to now? Because it's a new year, we've been apart for a couple of weeks on family night, and some of you are smiling and looking at me, and you're excited, and some of you have got, got a little bit of a fog going on, and I just want to catch everybody up to where we're at. I'm not interested in flying so hard and fast that we're not grasping this. You know, my hope is... I'm not going to give all of you a test. I thought about it, but I'm not going to give you a test. But I hope that we talk about this in a practical enough way that it begins to get a little bit deeper than a quarter of an inch into you. That it gets deeper than the bone. It, it gets into the marrow. And um, you, you begin to understand and recognize when the enemy tries to get us to uh, rely on our salvation by our own works or by anything that is apart from Jesus Christ alone. And to realize when Jesus truly transforms a heart and a life and he justifies us, that 
that when we truly have a heart for the Lord, there's also this desire that he puts within us to be sanctified, to be set apart more for God every day. And as we learn and grow, we apply God's plan for our life and our life bears spiritual fruit. It's, it's not that that saves us, it's what proves that we are saved. Not that we're perfect, but there's a hunger to go ahead, to move forward in God, not be self-righteous. I mean, when we really get this, it's the opposite. It humbles us before an awesome God to think that his power and his strength would come into us, that we would desire by his power and his strength to want to be more like him. It humbles us. It gives us more of a prayer life to pray for those who need Jesus in their life. It gives us a desire to be able to frame up these things and speak truth and life into people's lives that we care about. Some of them that are on on their way to a devil's hell and God wants us to intercept them on their journey to hell and see them turned around. Not that any of us can save anybody, but that the gospel will do its good work and we're responsible to share the gospel. And Jesus does the saving. He partners with people like us so that the world may know that there's a Savior. There's a Lord. Well, I'm going to leave that to you, Pastor Tim. I know I've bought into that for years. I'm the guy that used to stand up here and say, you get your family and friends here and I'll get them saved. What a disservice to the body of Christ. I am thankful when people get saved in this house. Truly born of the Spirit. But that is not even the main reason why we come together. We come together to be strengthened in the Lord, to worship a mighty God, to be be strengthened in the Word of God, to be encouraged in our faith, to do what? To go out and live the life and compel people to Jesus. That means every one of us should be be seeing people getting saved in our lives because we've taken on the understanding that our lives, every day, every day, at work, at home, in the neighborhood, whatever we're doing, is about Jesus. The work of the Lord. And so many of you take that so serious, it encourages my heart. You believe. Some of you are here and you are convinced your life is about the kingdom of our God. And you are so right. And you mess up. And you forget. And you're a little crazy sometimes. And you spout off. And you say the wrong thing. Right? And what do you do? Humble yourself. Repent. Make things right. 
forgive, receive forgiveness, move on. If you're a child of God, you cannot be stuck on the side of the road too long. Not if Jesus is in you by the power of his spirit. You can't. If you're saved and the power of God is truly in you, you've got to get up. I'm preaching a little better than I planned on tonight. I'm, I'm enjoying myself. Galatians 1 says these false teachers are throwing you into conversion, or, or I mean confusion, by trying to pervert the gospel. And Paul then spends almost two full chapters establishing his own supernatural calling from God, how God called him by grace, and how God gave him the gospel from heaven. A message not man-made, he convinces of that, but a message given directly by God to him to other pillars in Jerusalem, other men of faith and women of faith, who are preaching the same gospel. And when it comes down to the key issue, justification, how can a sinner be made right with Almighty God? Paul says so plainly in Galatians 2.16, yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we've obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. That's so plain I could see that. I mean, was that plain right there? How clear is that? In many ways, that's the pinnacle of the doctrine of this book of Galatians, right there. And Paul says plainly about himself in verse 20, he says, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Having established his own proclamation of the gospel, his own walk with Christ, Paul then launches into Galatians chapter 3 and 4 to support this. He supports it first from the Galatians' own experience saying, hey, you received the Holy Spirit when you heard and believed. He reminds them, you heard the whole, you, you got it. When you heard it, you believed, you received, it was yours. And then he brings up a doctrinal case that they cannot refute that God established long ago. And if you remember this, and you may not remember because you weren't here, but if you were here, you might remember that it, he brought up the case of Abraham in in Galatians 3.6, he says, In the same way, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. So it's been by faith all along. It's always been by faith. It was never by the law. How was Abraham saved before Jesus? He believed in the promise of the Messiah and he pointed to the cross. That's really what the Abrahamic covenant is all about. How do we, how do we get saved? We look back to the cross. It all hinges on the cross of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. That is where our salvation is based on. Abraham looked ahead. He couldn't see it, but he believed the promise. And God said it, he counted it, he counted him as righteous. How? Because he believed in the promise. 
Hmm. How clear is that? So then, it's by faith all along. Paul reminds them in Galatians 3.10. Look at it. Those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. That means all the law, all the time, or you're cursed. Okay, you're going to be saved by the law. Then you've got to do it all the time. Never miss. Never mess up. All the time. Or you're cursed. And everybody knew. Oops, I can't do that. It's impossible. So if we're trying to live under law, that's what we got. But Christ redeemed us from that kind of life. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming what? What did Jesus become? Anybody? He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a a sacrifice. He became the curse. He shed his blood. The perfect lamb of God who never sinned, who actually kept the law. And God received the perfect sacrifice in his very own son, Jesus, on the cross. And Jesus absorbed all the punishment that we deserved on the cross. That takes us to Galatians 3, 13 and 14. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham. So that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. So... Let me give you one reminder here. The law was not given to justify us. And the law does not change the promise. The law taught us, taught them, taught the Galatians, taught all the sons in the genealogy of Abraham, taught all the Jews, taught all the Gentiles, the law taught us that mankind needed a savior and Lord so that we could become heirs of his estate. Now we come to our text as Paul goes back one more time to the Old Testament to support this idea of justification by faith alone. When we arrive at the last two chapters of Galatians, chapters 5 and 6, Paul brings us wonderful practical applications in learning how to live a life of faith. I want to share this one point here, and I want to talk to you about 10 more minutes, and then I'm going to let you go a little early, and that will be three times in a row. <laughs> Who's counting? <laughs> Number one, historical background. Isaac and Ishmael, Sarah and Hagar. This is where it gets really good. And the best part of this is next week, not this week, as far as I'm concerned. I wished I could give you the whole mother load tonight. But many of you don't want the mother load. So I'll be nice. As we get into this, let's remember a wonderful scripture. I want to just for a moment take you to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 from the ESV, English Standard Version. 
Paul says in Ephesians to the church at Ephesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now we're going to find out in Galatians 5 and 6 ahead, not tonight, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, I am so looking forward to getting to that part, but we're not there yet, that we live holy and godly lives characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, and it's a whole different kind of life. But let's look at some historical facts that Paul is bringing to us in the story of Hagar, Sarah, and Abraham, along with their sons. Hagar's son is Ishmael, and Sarah's son is Isaac. And I realize tonight some of you know this story in spades, and some of you really don't. And that's all okay. Wherever you are in your journey, I, I want to help you understand this story because it is paramount in understanding what Paul is trying to say here. Paul's drawing some spiritual principles from this history. First, he speaks directly to the Galatians in our text. So this is where we have verse 21 of Galatians 4. Tell me, you who want to live under the law, do you know what the law actually says? Paul's very concerned about these Galatians, so he's making this direct appeal to these drifting brothers and sisters who are breaking his heart. I mean, literally, they are breaking Paul's heart. And he basically says, I don't understand it, but it seems like, my dear brothers and sisters, it seems like you want to be slaves under the law. You, you can just sense Paul's heart is breaking for his brothers and sisters at Galatia. And he's saying, are you not aware of what the law says? You know, Jesus, by the way, did that quite a bit. They'd come to Jesus with a problem and he, he would say this. I can find five times in the Bible where Jesus would say, haven't you read? Haven't you heard? Jesus did that. It's like we're reading the same book here. Go to, go to, your, we are. Go to your Bible search engine and put in the words, haven't you read? And you'll see at least four times where Jesus uses this technique. And so Paul's doing this. You who want to be under the law, aren't you aware of what the law says? This is like a friendly lawyer, a friendly attorney saying, have you read the fine print? That's what he's saying. Have you read the fine print? Do you realize what's in this contract? Do you know what you're signing? If you sign up for that, do you know what you're signing? Before you sign this, Paul's basically saying, I'm a friend of the family, I'm a lawyer, and I'm telling you what's going to happen if you sign this. Now that's, in my mind, when I read this, this is how Paul is making the argument to these folks at Galatia. He's given them the big picture that being a physical descendant of Abraham was never enough for the Jews. He's saying it's never going to be enough, Jews. <coughs> It's never going to be enough for you to be a physical descendant of Abraham. It's not going to save you. It does not save. There are different sons of Abraham. He has two sons, in this case, to look at Ishmael and Isaac. 
He's saying that what really matters is to be a son or daughter of the living God, a child of the promise, a child of the Spirit. And remember what John the Baptist said. Let me read that to you in Matthew 3. I think I put it in your notes. Matthew 3, 7 through 9. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptize, this is John the Baptist, he denounced them. Here's what John the Baptist says. You brood of snakes, he exclaimed. Who warned you to flee God's coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing for I tell you God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Hallelujah. I got excited about that. That just might be me. It might be you. Very strong words. Man, John the Baptist, he cut right to the chase, didn't he? He's saying, don't rely on just being Jewish or the fact that you have Abraham as your father in the physical lineage. Jesus said the same thing to his enemies, the Jews that were in his face and opposing his ministry. Jesus said this in John 8, 39, our father is Abraham, they declared. No, Jesus replied, for if you were really the children of Abraham, you would follow his example. Instead, you're trying to kill me because I told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham never did such a thing. No, you are imitating your real father, they replied. We aren't illegitimate children. God himself is our true father. Jesus told them, if God were your father, you would love me because I have come to you from God. I am not here on my own, but he sent me. So both John the Baptist and Jesus, speaking very plainly to Jewish people, that it's not enough to be a physical descendant from Abraham. In case, by the way, and I don't want to get sidetracked because I'm going to close in just a moment, but I want to tell you, in case you're here and you wonder, Pastor, do the Jews get a pass because they're a Jew when Jesus comes back if they're not saved, if they don't trust Jesus as their Messiah, but because they're Jews, they are the promised people of God, the apple of his eye, and we get all into all of this stuff. Listen, I don't understand everything. Here's what I know. For any person ever born, created by God, there's only one way to the Father. His name is Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. So we pray for our We pray not only for our Jewish brothers and sisters. You see, once we're in Christ, there's not Jew or Gentile or slave or free or black or white. It's It's not that we don't have different natural, physical, you know, some are Irish, some are German, some are whatever, some are a mess. We're black, we're white, you know. We're, we're all these things, but, but what brings us all together, even in this building right here, is Jesus. We're the family of God. And all of our differences become opportunity to see God's flavor, not to separate us or divide us, but to bring us together. 
And I, when I get to know you, I get to know a little bit more of God's taste and flavor and a little bit more of what he's able to do because everybody's not like me. In fact, there's nobody like me. You are a one of a kind, even Mackenzie, even if you are a twin to your sister Mariah, you are two different human beings and I know it, I'm your uncle. You are totally different. <laughs> and your sisters, and you're one in Christ and you're different and you have different DNA. You have a different fingerprint. Herb Hoke, you would make a terrible Tim Bowman. <laughs> but you make the best Herb Hoke God ever made. Folks, the world's got this all messed up. The world has got this wrong. We need to be shouting this message to the, to the rafters. We need to stop letting our children think that they're something they're not. They are who God created them to be. I'm, I'm mad. I'm mad at the devil. I am. I am mad. This crazy messed up world telling our kids, people that don't know anything, trying to tell our kids stuff, that anybody that's got any sense at all knows is a lie. I'm fed up with it. Righteously. Let me close. Because I, I don't have time to open the next part of this verse because I want to so bad. We are. I got four minutes. We're going to get out in two. So next week, we're next week we're going to go back to this tragic story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, and what happened with them. So let me close with this verse: Galatians four twenty two and twenty three. The Scripture says that Abraham had two sons. Listen to this: one from his slave wife, and one from his freeborn wife. The son of the slave wife was born in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise, but the son of the freeborn wife was born as God's own fulfillment of his promise. Oh, I can't wait to get into this. This is where it gets good. Next week. Stand to your feet. We're done. If you're planning on dying, wait till after next week, all right? Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that we not just have fun around here but that we're learning and we're growing and we're learning how to live and walk the truth. And uh, I thank you for each one here tonight. I bless them in the Lord. Those that need healing, be healed in Jesus' name. Whatever your need is, we serve a God who supplieth every need. We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Two minutes early. Good night. <laughs>